Welcome to our podcast. I am Josh Way. I am Dan Hammer. And we watch movies that one or both of us have seen before to see how they hold up. And uh, we're going to do that today, and it's going to be a lot of fun. The most fun. But first, uh, how you been, Dan? I've been pretty well. The weather here has been cold and windy and rainy, which is not seasonable for June, I've got to say. But the sun cracked out and gave me a little a little extra ray of hope this afternoon. So I'm in a good place. How are you? I'm okay. I'm a little frazzled, as you know. Um, we had a, a week of rain last week. We had a Seattle week last week. But the nice thing was the temperature held back. It is now hot and, and humid like it usually is in late June here. And uh, I'm just back from a swim lesson with the kid and other stuff going on. The transition to summer in this household, my wife is a teacher, my daughter is a school child. The transition to from school time to summertime is rather violent in our home. Not interpersonally violent, but... Uh, not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Ask me next week. But yeah, so we're just figuring out all this. Everything just makes so much sense when everybody's in, you know, in their place. When everyone's in their place, I'm happy. That's that's a takeaway. Uh, I feel that that's your film that you you need to find like a good double meaning title. Oh yeah, about everything in its place and the crisis that a household right. experiences as they move to summer schedule. All right, well, it'll do at least as well as Booksmart. Right? Yeah, man, what a shame. That should but, have been a, a phenomenon, national, nationwide phenomenon. I mean, Toy Story underperformed technically. Yeah, and I, I've been seeing a lot of uh, the film Twitter think piece uh, stuff about. Uh, franchise fatigue people have been fed nothing but you know you want franchises you want sequels and now they're kind of getting maybe a little bit sick of it that's okay with me sure but it's made all the more complicated by the fact that toy story 4 is great i've only heard amazing things about it i might actually see it it's so good it, ha it has no right being as good as it is or even existing i was really nervous about it i expected it to be not great and it was fantastic it won me over immediately well, that's that's a great review. I have to call up my AMC app and my Letterboxd just to see what I watch because I watched a lot in since we last talked. But I am so frazzled because of the way life is. I haven't had time. I usually make a little Google Doc for myself. I'll tell you something I watched. Please go. And I don't have much to say about it. I watched Bathtubs Over Broadway. You did. And I didn't yet. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> oh, okay. Really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, so it was a topic that really interested me, and it should have been interesting, but for some reason, it was centered on the story of the guy who was interested in it, mm -hmm. and we're supposed to be interested in his career at the Letterman show, and we're supposed to shed a tear over Letterman coming to an end, and Letterman is interviewed off to the side, huh. and well, what is this about? And so they kind of he kind of catches up with uh, people who were involved in some of these famous. Uh, industrial musicals and that's just about it they don't really bring any insight into what they were or what they meant to people mm. and it culminates in this big musical number that's trying to be sort of la la land-esque with himself as the central character and then walk-ons by all the people he's met mm. and it was just kind of like a rah, rah, ending yeah. And I thought, what a shame. I think that maybe they didn't have a lot to go on because the truth is there's not a lot of footage and there's not a lot known about it. Right. And besides watching someone who's 90 being like, well, I made my living off of composing yeah. the tunes. Well, that's not that's not an interesting story. Hmm. What happened? Right. So I believe this was a book by this guy. And then it was probably just like, a, hey, you want to you want to make a documentary about your book? And so that and then it's so thin on an actual like material so that they have to make it uh, personal like that. Hmm. That's a shame. I, I mean, I stuck with it to the end, but throughout the whole thing, I was like, why am I still watching this? Hmm. I am down with the comedy writer Letterman stuff probably more than you are. So I'm, that might be enough to keep me engaged, but well, you watch it and you let me know. All right. Is there any actual footage of the, of the productions? There is very limited. Yeah. Maybe, 10 seconds at a time without context. Mm -hmm. That's a shame because that would have really been the draw. Like give us a case study of a couple of these actual shows. Yeah. And center the stories of the people involved with some of their old photos or mementos or memories and the, and trying to understand the stakes of mm -hmm. these things that th these kept actors and songwriters and directors, choreographers, etc., in business 
for dry times between shows and then maybe talk a little bit as to why in the 90s the entire thing just dried up Mm -hmm. this thing that had been going on since the 50s or maybe even earlier just no longer was a thing and now nobody talks about it and nobody knows that this was ever a thing that's kind of interesting what happened then right right but it doesn't look into any of that it's mostly concerned with the idea that the guy whose idea it was found it interesting and his journey of looking into it. Hmm. It'd be like if I want, you know, some interesting topic and I say, okay, let's do a documentary on this topic. Okay. Here's me going to the bookstore or to the library to research. Here's me talking to the librarian assistant to try to find out more. It's like Elmo's world for adults. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, that's disappointing, but uh, I will probably still check it out. That's the only thing you saw other than our feature for the week? No, um, but why don't you say something? Oh, okay. Yeah, I've yeah, got yeah. Other things later. So I did see Toy Story 4, and I guess I should go there first because I think that's the most positive thing that I have. It's good. It takes the Toy Story mythos to a new place, a surprising new place. It takes a lot of risks. That's the thing for a third sequel, a fourth movie in a franchise, not only to just keep up the quality of, of humor and story, and uh, but to also be kind of bold and daring and take it to some new places. Uh, it's admirable. And um, Forky's great. I'm not going to bother like recounting it and you know people are going to see this movie, so I don't have to like sell it to people. I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. I saw online that someone made their own Forky. Oh, yeah. Rather than get the official character. <laughs> and were they immediately detained by Disney agents? I don't I don't know. I think it is an option if I want the action figure. My kid has already tried that. Did it work? She threw out countless attempts that didn't work. <laughs> so given the, the way it works in the movie. That's the, the sequel right there. <laughs> where the love of the child has brought this pile of essentially garbage to life. My daughter's leaving this trail of corpses and the top of the garbage. Bag. The discarded forkies. Yeah. Uh, so what else did you see, Dan? I saw The Dead Don't Die last oh, night. Oh, you did? I did. I'm sorry. Do you want to hear about it or not? Uh, yeah, yeah. You didn't see it, right? I didn't see it. I was intrigued by it. I thought the trailers did not look good. but then, And then the reviews have mostly confirmed my suspicions. But go ahead. Well, I enjoyed it on the whole. I like the crazy world they create it you know it exists in no reality that we can recognize the characters are very strange but in a very funny way to me and you're just kind of watching kind of modern film icons all doing their thing and i smiled throughout and laughed throughout the script is self-aware and it breaks the fourth wall a couple times. And I wish it didn't do that because yeah. that brought nothing to the filmmaking. And really there was no place for the movie to end. There was nowhere for it to go except, you know, for zombies to overwhelm a town and everyone just to die in despair. Hmm. So I guess that's a spoiler for the end, but not really. I would, I would give it a, I would give it a recommend. I think you might enjoy it. Okay. Uh, it, the trailers just had a feeling of like they felt out of time. They felt like something from 1998 with the narration. In a way, it is, but in a way, I don't know. In a way, it is very contemporary in the ennui and pseudo hipster humor. Tilda Swinton is bringing one of her weirdest characterizations to date. She's absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. I just I found myself smiling and enjoying this movie and not being bored by a second of it. Okay. Well, your recommendation is uh, far from meaningless. So, thanks. <laughs> I'll, 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 Can I put that yeah. on my resume? Absolutely. In the quote quotable area. <laughs> yep. His recommendations are far from meaningless. Yep. No, that uh, that's significant. So I'm glad to hear that you oh, gaining ground. <laughs> So in the movies, oh, I did see another theatrical release. I saw Late Night. Okay. What did you think? Um, This is a very common reaction that I'm having to a lot of movies, especially a lot of comedies this year, last couple of years. It's fun to watch. The cast is delightful. There are moments of movie fun, but the premise is baffling. The script is weird. The choices are strange. The world it creates doesn't make sense. And... You wonder ultimately why the why the movie is the way it is. 
So Emma Thompson plays a late night host who is the only woman host of a late night show. And you'd think that would give you right there some stuff to do. Like, how did that happen? Uh, how did she earn that or win that? But maybe I, I would understand if from a feminist perspective, Mindy Kaling didn't want to tell that story and wanted to just tell an alternate universe story where she was, everybody loved her for 35 years, 40 years. And it's just a fact. But then the movie does acknowledge the, you know, Jimmy Fallon is real. And all the other hosts are the same hosts that are in our reality. And she's having guests on her show, like Diane Feinstein and and then like intellectual, political, literature type of guests. And that's just talked about. We never see it, but they make a lot of jokes about it. And she's very like erudite and she won't do political material. So it's just it doesn't make any sense. The world of the backstage with the writers, she's never met her writers from scene to scene. She doesn't know who they are and she's never been in the writer's room or she knows intimate details of one writer's life when she needs to for the story's sake. And then Mindy Kaling plays this kind of pixie who wanders in and gets the job. And it baffled me while I, I still enjoyed seeing it and I liked everybody in it and I wanted to continue liking it so when did emma thompson become a gay icon because somehow she is yeah and everyone's like so excited about this but what you're describing you're right it doesn't make sense how could she have been on the air for 35 years or saying she's been a late night host since the 80s right that she was accepted into that world back then she would have had to have been a force of nature right how could she be so talentless as never to have written her own material or worked closely with writers. And yet that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yes. And yet the central conflict of the story of this movie, all that is the backstory that she's beloved. She's been in it for decades, but the the central story of this movie is you're tired. We're, we're canceling your show. People are bored of you that you have to get hip. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So she's this, she's institutionalized somehow, but how did someone like her get institutionalized is much more fascinating than what, stuff they do in this movie that's for the sequel later i guess so what a lot of people don't know about emma thompson i'm guessing is that she she was a comedian in britain in sketch uh before she was a film actress so they actually are able to leverage some of that footage of her on tv in the 80s being funny and pretend that that's her in america on a talk show she's professor trelawney that's kind of a funny role true true she's got the chops that's for sure And the role is baffling, but she's, you know, endlessly watchable. She lights the same cigarette three times in one scene, and I was bored enough to notice. Oh. Um, That's a bad mistake. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that. Worth seeing if you like the people in it, and just as a case, stream it sometime as a a baffling test case of a concept that doesn't really make sense and probably could have with just a few little tweaks. I'm sure that I will see that one. Yeah. Anything else, Dan, on your uh, plate this week? Nope. I saw nothing else. I will be very quick with my others. I don't want to do full reviews. Uh, one of the things I watched was No Country for Old Men because I'm listening to a Coen Brothers podcast and that was the next one in line. I have intentionally avoided Coen's for this show because I just think that's a whole different thing. And some people are sick of the Coen Brothers. Some people revere them. And I don't know. I, I might at some point be like interested in going back maybe to some of the very early films, but uh, no country would just feel like, what's the point of talking about it? I mean, I think it's great. I hadn't seen it in a very long time. I think what I said about it on Letterboxd, though, was that I think it is like a perfect movie, but I don't always enjoy watching it because it is very unpleasant and it's the, the mm. most nihilistic of the Coen Brothers movies. So you kind of have to be in the mood for pure craft. You know, you, don't, you can't be looking for a rollicking good time. Yeah, I mean, that's why it doesn't really have a place in this podcast because of course it holds up it's one of a handful of perfect films yeah oh and then last night on hbo i streamed the recent predator reboot directed by shane black who actually wrote the original predator or no i think he was just in it i think he's like a bit part in it or something like that maybe both uh it's terrible oh it's real bad Good. Yeah. It feels like, and, and this is very Shane Black, but it feels like what he wanted to do, it feels like the intention here is R-rated, macho, un-PC, old-fashioned, shoot 'em up action movie. And I think you could do that, but you would have to be self-aware. You'd have to take it to a different level. You'd have to do something to give it a spark of nowness. And so 
I'm going to be a little bit crass, but within the first 20 minutes of the movie, characters said the word pussy three times and not just calling somebody a wimp. And I'm thinking, well, that's gross. And I'm like, oh, they want to have, they want to be an 80s in your face action movie and they can't say the R word, make fun of somebody. So they're, they're hauling right. out the P word, but I was wrong. They managed to say the R word three times later in the movie. Oh. So, yeah, that's just one little, again, I'm not trying to be snooty about it. You could do what they were trying to do and you could do it well, but you have to make a good movie. And they did not make a good movie. It was baffling and unpleasant and gory and they didn't work here. Yeah. While you were talking, I Googled Predator movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For some context. Yep. And I understand everything now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Let me, let me save you the trip to the video store on that one, Dan. You can no safely more. cross that off your list. Well, I am looking to rack up my blockbuster points. So, Yeah, all right. Well, should we um, – is there anything else or shall we take a break and then get into it? Well, I think – I had one thought. Do you read anything about the uh, Netflix versus watching in the theater vis-a-vis -vis privilege that was going around this week? Do you see any of those I threads think I might or articles? Have brushed past a couple tweets in that neighborhood, but refresh me. All right, so they're saying that th this is this is kind of meta because people are looking at this from different levels of vantage. But they're saying, oh, there was this time um, when you could go to the theater and you don't get to choose your time. The time is set, and you don't really get to choose what you see because just what the theater offers you are the only choices and that that is the place of the common person. And now with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, yeah, right with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and people are paying their 10 or 12 or 15, whatever dollars a month for these services. Isn't that a privileged thing that everyone would do that? rather than going to the theater to do it the right and common, less privileged way. But aren't we privileged to be chronologically in a time where there are more things and choices and they fixed some stuff? Like, in general, that's such a, that seems absurd to me. Yeah, I, I just, that, that viewpoint, like, made me upset and annoyed over something that shouldn't really matter to me. Sure. The idea that the person who is watching at home and has this endless choice of things that have already been made, so they're worthless otherwise, right. to the studios who have made them, at this point, except through people's Netflix subscriptions, to say that those are the privileged who stay home for 10 bucks with Netflix rather than go to the multiplex and pay $15 plus concessions and parking and see the newest release. But the part about, I mean, I guess if you want to talk economics, that's one thing. But the thing about having choice, the, you know, the idea of the theater just showing you the movie, that ended with the multiplex anyway. So you still have a, an array of titles and then like a, a dozen times for each choices. one. A ton of choices. Yeah, I guess so. I feel privileged that streaming is a thing. But I feel privileged when I go to the movies, too, that I can afford, you know, to do it at all. Uh, I don't know. I guess That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I wish I would have prepared my thoughts better because even I'm bored listening to myself <laughs> yammer on about it. No. So just cut this part out. That sounds like typical <laughs> Twitter posturing and, and, you know, bored people finding something to be outraged about. Everybody wants to figure out who the, uh, the privileged wankers are and call them out, put them on blast on social media. That's what we're here for. Yeah. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be right back to talk about Crash. Welcome back. Holds up, Dan and Josh. Dan, this week's film was your selection, and I won't let you forget that. So please <laughs> go ahead and uh, introduce us to Crash. Well, no spoilers, but I obviously regret my choice already. Crash is a 2004 American drama film produced, directed, co-written by Paul Haggis, 
who we would have remembered from the year previous being the screenwriter of Million Dollar Baby. And it talks about what features racial and social tensions in L.A. And it was inspired by a real-life incident where Haggis was carjacked outside of a video store on Wilshire in 1991. Josh, tell me about the first time you saw this movie. I believe I saw this movie in a theater with my wife in its first run, um, pre-Oscar. I don't. Uh, it may have been like one of those back in theaters for the Oscars. I don't remember. But um, we saw it. And I think I've said to you that I, I hated this movie from first sight. I don't know if that's true because I was watching it and, spoiler alert, hating it, but also kind of remembering, having like phantom memories of my reaction. I think some of it got through to me back then. I think it felt authentic and and bold a little bit. So I saw it, had a strong reaction to it that I think was mixed, uh, even at the time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I liked this movie the first time that I saw it. I wouldn't have known what I was walking into. And for that era, and I want to talk about the era a little bit, because there's something about, you know, just post 9-11, I mean, not just, but relatively, and where white America was located um, regarding race, it seems to be all of a piece. In other films, like I think of uh, Avenue Q was about the exact same time, and they've got that everyone's a little bit racist number that says like, well, yeah, sure, white people hate every other race, but every other race hates white people, so... Mm. And it doesn't have any awareness of power dynamics or of history or of how any of those things would be playing into our our life together and how these dynamics play out. My rewatch of this, I, I mean, it was it was a hate fest. I, I just okay, loathed, I, I loathed every second of this movie. Yeah. And I can't believe that I decided that we should watch this because it's <laughs> utter garbage beginning to end. Um, some of the filmmaking, I can still go with the histrionic and trying to be operatic or lyrical. I, I can still be taken in on that. The themes, though, and their handling of them and Haggis's handling of them is, to me, just so inept and offensive throughout. I, is he going for a satire? I feel like, like the whole thing is a parody of itself that every conversation that any character has instantly seems to escalate yes, yes. into a shouting match where they're swearing at each other couples are going to divorce people are going to murder one another in the street right. everyone is so on edge mm -hmm. they should i don't know take some breaths <laughs> find some serenity if they're unhappy with their relationship find a way out of it or find a way to work on it everyone is <laughs> yeah. has their jaws clenched and their shoulders to their right. ears at all times right yeah and i, I it's so absurd but I really do remember it feeling serious in 2004. Oh, it sure did. It wanted to be capital D drama. This is it. It's all happening. We're going we're gonna to confront this. As far as it goes, the way that the stories work together, it's completely implausible. But it, it, it works if only 12 people live in L.A. Right. I can go with it, though, for the sake of it being a movie. I can suspend that disbelief. I found some of the the situations that they were in to be compelling, some of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you want to like some of the characters. I wasn't bored watching it. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. I thought maybe a good way to talk through would be to like sort of walk through the film from beginning to end as, I mean, we'll go off track for sure and talk character by character and what they mean. Sure. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Let so, me just take a handful of pills. <laughs> Go ahead. Get us started. So at the beginning, we meet Don Cheadle and his partner, played by Jennifer Esposito. Let's talk about these two. <laughs> I feel like Cheadle, you know, he's trying to be morally upright. I don't write off instantly hate his character. Mm -hmm. But he's dating Jennifer Esposito for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the screenplay. They just happen to be dating. And he makes casual racist remarks to her about her heritage. 
that are that are jolting yeah because of the goodwill that he's generated doesn't why he call her doesn't he call her a a white woman in one context and then a mexican in another right well he calls her a white woman to his mother because he knows that will make his mother upset yeah and then when she asks him about it he mentions her being mexican or something and then i don't remember what her heritage is but her dad is one you know south latin american or person, south, yeah. south american country her mom is another and then he makes an offensive remark about all of all of those countries basically being Mexican or something. Is that supposed to be a laugh line for the right. audience? And, and why is he so disrespectful to this woman that he's dating? And while so many of the characters are just constantly spouting stereotypes, either ironically about themselves or hatefully about someone else in this movie. And it might be the baggage I have about Don Cheadle that I thought he was supposed to be one of the more upstanding and moral characters. And that ends up being kind of his arc. But if that was supposed to make me feel like he had a lot of, he has a lot of work to do on himself. It just felt like there's so much of this movie that just feels like writing. Yeah. They're being fed lines. They're being fed things to do that don't always feel natural or make sense. And something I found offensive was in that meeting. I didn't totally understand the dynamics of what was going on where he was sort of being asked uh, not to say what he knows about the one case because they really want to prosecute it the way that they want to prosecute it. And in exchange, it's um, implied that he will get kind of a dream job out of it. Yeah. And then he makes that remark about how this person has just bought themselves a black man. Mm -hmm. I found that to be an, an unthinkable response from him. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's because maybe he really does want that job regardless of how he gets it and that's supposed to be like a surprising line that upward mobility for a man who's black in america you know to get paid for doing the job that he wants to do that's just the white man buying a black man that's not mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. yeah and I, we'll keep going because there's so much to talk about but in general one of the things i'm going to probably repeat about this movie is how it wants to say Let's look at stereotypes head on and be honest with ourselves when they're true, because you know they are, but they're all true, so that somehow evens the playing field. And it ends up, in effect, being an an all-lives-matter movie. It sure is an all-lives-matter movie. The next characters that we meet instantly is the uh, woman who rear-ends their car, a a character I, I come to find out from Wikipedia is named Kim Lee. Of all things, mm. I think that, of course, there are people out there who are named Kim Lee. Yeah. But in a movie like this, right. that seems like some lazy character naming mm. from from a white screenwriter, I've got to say. And Jennifer Esposito is right in with an altercation and horrible racist remarks to this woman. That's just what she goes right, right in for. Right. She's a detective right. on duty. Yeah, we don't know that in the moment, but right. it turns out that's revealed, right? And she seems to be on her way to meet her husband. I don't totally didn't didn't totally understand her husband's arc, but he's been run over by some other characters, and he ends up in the hospital. And that's supposed to be like a heartwarming, yeah, a heartwarming uh, being reunited. Oh, oh, Lee, yeah, 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 right, right. And then there's that check because he's a human trafficker, right. <laughs> And then we're supposed to have this heartwarming right. moment with this human trafficker who's been hit by a van. Right. And In so every that's all... case, the stereotype is true or something worse. <laughs> yeah. It's that supposed to, I mean, is, are, we, are our hearts supposed to be warmed? Are we to be calmed by the fact that this man who clearly is of low morals and a, an oppressor of other humans for profit, that he and his wife were able to be together? Right. That is bed of convalescence. I feel like a movie like this is constantly like, huh? And it's like putting you on the spot. Like your reaction to this is the point of this movie. But when it's so absurd, I'm reacting more to the filmmaking than I am to the points the filmmaking is trying to make. And we, it's like we needed two Asian characters. They, Their plot really has nothing to do with anything. But since we're having a smorgasbord of the nations of the world, regular missionary convention... We need to have two Asian characters. How about the wife? We'll have her be a bad driver. And the husband, he'll be a human trafficker. That's where the screenplay goes. Yeah. All right. Next up is the uh, Persian family. Right. And that opening scene I found to be maddening because it makes you think he doesn't really speak English at all. 
he seems completely unable to understand the yeah. gun shop owner. Yeah, yeah. But later, he apparently understands it so so well that he speaks it at he speaks English at home to his wife and his daughter. Right, for and I, whom English appears to be a first language. Is that lazy filmmaking, or is it like a reveal that he could speak English the whole time? I don't understand why he would pretend not to when he's trying to buy a gun. Right. And I don't know if this is just, uh, I mean, I don't know. Certainly this is post 9-11 nerves to put these characters here and to make them fearful. And they're, and he's always angry. The man, the right. Farad is so angry all the time and yelling and yeah. threatening people and taking no moments to understand. And is that how we saw people from the middle east back then that we would have just thought that was acceptable because in right. 2005 whenever it was I, I didn't think anything of it yeah i have that in in my notes that i found him to be a very unfortunate caricature of, of just an immigrant that's kind of you know like he was constantly confused to the point of histrionics and shouting and and conf- scared and confused it was very that was the the only note he seemed to have until he turned murderous also his wife is played by uh marina sirtis from star trek the next generation who is greek not Persian, but... Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I missed that completely. <laughs> what a wardrobe shift. Yeah. Yes. All right. And then we've got Ludacris and Lorenz Tate on a street corner. Yeah. I really hated their first scene. Yeah. I really hated it. It's too self-aware. It's, it's movie conversation. Right. The, their two characters would never talk like that. I didn't like how they blamed a black woman for their experience in the restaurant. I I would have loved to have heard what that waitress had to say about them. Right. Frankly. And then punctuation on that scene, which I'm sure is what you're about to get to. Yes. I, I loathe that, that they're trying to set it up that everyone's expectations are so wrong, but actually it's right. Right. Because we are just here to scare you and to steal your stuff. And they make a dumb joke about it. Yeah, Ludacris, I, I already sent you a screenshot of my notes. I have Ludacris equals Ludacris. Yeah. Uh, he, he's just a character who's spouting philosophy and ideas. It's a character that the screenwriter can just use as a megaphone. And he's got all, he's got all these racist opinions that are just coming out of him because he's keeping it real. Yeah, and so the people that they set upon are uh, Brendan Fraser and Sandra Bullock, of course. The whitest whites. And... Oh, when they're back at home mm-hmm. and she's screaming at him, I'm just like, is there no wine in the house? Right. Is there any Valium? She's just, yeah. she's so on edge and so cruel. And she doesn't like her locksmith. She just assumes that he's going to come back and rob her. She wants the doors done again tomorrow. Who are they going to call tomorrow where you might not have the right. same risk? It's yeah. horrifying. That whole situation, I hated the two of them. Yeah, and he ends up being the the DA, and I don't know. I, I don't feel like he got much of an arc as a character. He was kind of just there to facilitate things and put up with his wife. Yeah, unless I'm forgetting a... something. If he had some kind of a moral quandary or a moment of revelation, no, I don't think he did. He was just there to be there. The two of them at the time, I remember thinking, seemed too big to be in that movie, mm-hmm. into to be in an ensemble movie like this. Well, are we talking about? I guess in the interest of time, we'll talk about their entire arc while we're talking about them. Sure. Sandra Bullock's big <laughs> denouement <laughs> falling down the stairs. Backwards. And she even goes, oh. <laughs> I could not believe what I was seeing. I don't know how I didn't remember that. Uh, well, and she's, she's so terrible to her housekeeper who clearly does a great job and is beloved in yeah. the family. And then in the end, when she's crying, you are my best Oh, she's friend. hugging No, it. she's not. We should have she's gotten your empl- a reaction shot of Maria rolling her eyes. <laughs> right. She's your employee who you treat like garbage. And that's why she's here. Not because she loves and cares for you, but because it's her job to be here right. today. Right. And she's a nice person. And so she's going to help you. And I have no problem. If you're going to talk about race and you're going to talk about types of people in L.A. and stereotypes, the uptight, rich, white lady, I, it's a... Th- it's a thing, you know, and I, but it's just, I don't know how, I don't know. I don't understand how a movie can miss the mark so much. And, but did it not feel like that in 2004? I don't know. I don't, I was not so distracted by how horrible of a person she was back then. Yeah. I found it distracting because are they to be a part of the whole? 
are, are is that a stereotype that right. they I didn't feel like it. I felt like they were being centered as normal people and everybody else are the outsiders, the people to be feared or trusted or befriended. They felt like the the center of the story to me from the filmmaker's perspective. Mm-hmm. Though it wasn't from a narrative perspective. Right. It's like they were um ground zero, they were neutral. And their locksmith, uh played Michael by Pena. Michael Pena, to me it was the best part of the movie. Yeah. I I thought he gives a great authentic seeming performance. The movie's only warmth yeah. is between he and his daughter. They seem like they've got a nice life. He's got a, a a cute story to help her feel safe. I liked him a lot. Yeah, I I didn't love that scene and the writing, but I yeah, you're right. There, as far as characters go, and as far as presence on the screen, he was the only likable human being in the movie. And yeah. she was sweet. And again, I hate where their story goes. I feel like it's one of the biggest cop outs in the movie. But it is a little glimpse of something like human when you when you go go into that storyline. So let's talk about um, Terrence Howard and Thandie Newton, married married couple who are being a little naughty on the road, <laughs> uh, leading to being pulled over. We'll we'll save the cops for a second, and she is uh, violated by one of the police officers, and he doesn't step in because it's a volatile situation. He just wants to get out of there, and then when they get home she confronts him and they have their big fight as everyone in this movie does because yes. you can't have a scene without having a there's spills over into several scenes in a row yes it does what were we to learn from these two what was their place because they have an important role throughout to me on the surface yeah it would seem like they represent the two ways for a black individual to react to their systemic oppression in a place like la but i don't know that it's not that clean cut and it doesn't really work. Yeah, I, I feel that especially coming from a white screenwriter, what he's trying to put forth is this idea that, well, there are black people and then there are black people who are like, you know, more white, though. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I felt like that's who the, he was making these characters be and to have that crisis as if they wouldn't have had that crisis their whole life. Yeah. As if that isn't just their lived experience of being seen as black by the whole world and at the same time feeling this uh, rejection from the black community for not measuring up in some way. Yeah. And I guess I'll talk about this more when we get to those cops, but of the two of them, their arcs take them to places to teach them something. And I guess hers is to just learn that you watch out because you might need a racist one day. I don't really. What was the point of that? The biggest. Let's get into the cops. Famous we... scene in the movie. And what was the point? It feels like it's supposed to be profound, but it's kind of humiliating. She doesn't learn anything about him personally. A lot of racists do their jobs well. Yeah. Um, let's 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 talk about the cops right. because I think we have to bring them in. Yeah. So uh, we've got Matt Dillon and Ryan Phillippe playing cops. And Matt Dillon is a horrible racist continuously. To me, his character had no redemption. Yeah. And Ryan Phillippe is very uncomfortable with this. And he wants to step in when um, Dillon is violating Newton, but he doesn't feel like he can. He stands off to the side and gets reassigned. And we'll talk more about where he goes. Almost feels at first like he might be a relatable character. Right. Almost seems like he might end up doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, Dylan was, at the time, the standout performance. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's who that was. Because, right. hey, a, a white racist. The Academy loves it. Now, was he, or, Was it like a, a comeback kind of a thing? Was he out of the picture for long enough that this was like a Travolta in Pulp Fiction kind of thing? Or was he a working actor? In I don't era? remember where he was at at the time. I just remember that he was the standout performance. Yeah. He, was the, he was the Oscar nominee that showed that the actors were really behind this movie. I hated his character. I really did. Yes. I, I loathed the way that he treated uh, the couple that he pulled over. I hated how he treated the woman who's the kind of insurance claim rep with his dad. We're supposed to feel bad for him than right. to look into his life and say, oh, look, he's got a father and poor health and he's caring for him. And that's so hard. No. And, and then he goes yeah. in and lectures her right. on how his dad, you know, kind of abdicated his seat of privilege so that she could have a job at all. So now she ought to be ever, ever grateful as unto Jesus right. for 
being able to have a shot at life in the world. And so that means that he should get a privilege on the other end. Oh, and that, yeah, that backstory designed, I guess it felt like it was supposed to explain he's a racist, but listen up. Here's why straight out of Tucker Carlson, straight out of the 2019 alt-right, like they're taking our jobs. So you'd be a racist too. And that's supposed to give us sympathy for him so that by the time he heroically rescues Thandie Newton, is he the hero of the movie by then? Because he wasn't my hero. Yeah. So there's obviously uh, some sort of catharsis, but leaving, leading nowhere in, like you say, the most famous scene. And I, and I do kind of like how the scene is shot, if I'm honest. I go in for that. Sure. But what is what the content of it is horrifying, where she's being re-traumatized by her previous assailant being the one to, you know, reach in and reach across her lap right. and have to get in an intimate way to undo her seatbelt while she's stuck upside down. And her performance and communicates real horror. And I guess I it might have been read at the time as she's just swallowing it back and, and putting her her own racism aside. But it felt like she was terrified of being assaulted by this man in the middle of this already terrible situation. Right. She didn't want his help. And I mean, it was life or death and it would have to be for her to put up with his presence for one second because why in the world would she have otherwise? But then in the end, they show her crying and like holding on to him, not an embrace, but like she needs him for support or something. Right. I don't know. It was gross. Yeah. And then it ends with him just there kind of in like the, I don't know, some kind of Renaissance painting, just holding the cloth in the middle of the road, like Christ or some nonsense. And then let's talk more about Ryan Philippi, yeah. who, in an act of goodwill, pulls over and um, picks up Lorenz Tate, gets scared that this guy has a gun and wants to, you know, carjack him or something. Shoots him. Shoots him. Yeah. I mean, he's not on duty. The guy would not know that he was a cop getting into that car. And then he just pushes him out the door and burns the car. Yeah. And there are these scenes of like the car burning and people are throwing things into it. And it's like a fever dream that like, oh, carefree, let it go. <laughs> we all we all make mistakes. Let go. Right, let's let it go. And like with uh, Ludacris releasing the, yeah. the trafficking victims. <laughs> there you go. As if he was doing something Ooh. noble. I thought at first he was going to take the money for them. And I thought, how in the world could they end the movie like that? But even letting them go, of course, that's better than selling them into slavery. Sure. But into what life did they walk? He left them on a street it's corner. It's bonkers, yeah. In a, in a foreign land where they don't speak the language or have any papers or money. Right. What are, what are they going to do now? And was it like a Chinatown portion of L.A. or something like that? I think that's what Which we were supposed to think. Racist to say he at yes. least drove them to Chinatown. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> what were they going to do? And that's just sort of how the movie ends. Yeah. No, there is no justice done. Nothing was learned. Yeah, everything is supposed to just be internal. We're supposed to assume that everybody had just the experience they needed to have. Ryan Philippi needed to murder someone to find out, I guess I am a little racist. Yeah. And so he can just let it all go. And like, like the flames of the car, like the smoke that rises. And it was the such contrivance for his character because he, uh, even, even the murders contrivance, I don't buy it, but let's, okay. That's what he did. He panicked. It's in all of us to have a terrible moment, but then he just walks away from it. Like, mm, live and learn. Right. Wouldn't his character like to, who was so by the book and like, so introspective, wouldn't he have turned himself in or no, certainly not. <laughs> and Terrence Howard, when he has the showdown yeah. with police, what is that about? Is, more is he trying to, you know, hold his ground I'm not saying that he needs to, you know, comply with the police or something. In that moment, though, he put himself in grave danger and it probably would not have ended well in reality. I felt they gave him no dignity. Right. It wasn't as if the filmmaking had some sort of inspiring music or slower camera work where he is going to step into his birthright right. as a, as a human being worthy of these cops respect that's not how it was no it was supposed to be a a scare moment if the point is supposed to be dramatically that it's a bookend to the his opening in the movie and that by now he's made the decision this is the type of black man i'm going to be i mean fascinating to see what paul haggis thinks that is but uh it didn't the contrivance of the scene didn't make any space for that 
again, contrivance that Ludacris is just hiding in the SUV. No, no police officer is going to go like take a look inside the SUV as part of the protocol of this kind of encounter. It just felt so bizarre the way it played out. And I it, like I got what it was supposed to be, but it it just wasn't that. Yeah, it didn't come together in any sort of way for me. I, I hated. Oh, we didn't even talk about the guy with the gunshot with the blanks that you would right. show up at someone's house right. to shoot them. And then they would just like angrily close the door like, nice try, dude, and leave him standing there. Well, I wonder if that is another post 9-11 catharsis, the idea that this monster would confront you and that you wouldn't be hurt, that you would right. somehow be impervious to his, his to his weaponry. Yeah. And that we feel like, whoo, that was a relief. <laughs> You know? We almost got nine eleven. I know. Um, in the street. now with, with the blanks set up. Yes, because at the beginning when they're leaving the gun shop in kind of a rush, she's having an argument about what sort of free ammunition she should get. Oh, yeah. And she doesn't understand it, and she goes, "I'll just take the red box." And he goes, "Do you know what those are?" And she's like, "I'll take the red box." Okay. Okay. And so she kind of, by a stroke of luck, got happened to get blanks by a stroke of screenwriting. Yeah. All right. Still, I still consider that scene egregious, but I thought it was a magical moment, and that was like too much on top of too much. Oh, my goodness. So this movie famously um, was the upset Best Picture winner, um, upsetting Brokeback Mountain that year. Not entirely surprising as the as awards trajectory went. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some, some problems with uh, Brokeback in the Academy with people not wanting to watch it. Um, but when you look at how the nominations came out, um, Crash was maybe better situated to take the win, but it was still a surprise. And I think that's unthinkable. I think that if this movie were made today, it wouldn't even hit the top 10. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. But I was thinking how bizarre it was and how what a different world 2004 is, but that if you put Green Book next to Crash, they kind of have a similar way of portraying racial types. But they do They do and don't. I'll say this about Green Book. Green Book is... Um, held up by two wonderful performances and you're following the same two characters throughout mm. and you really get to know and like them, whatever you think about what they say or do. Sure. Yeah. The, not so, not so here. Mm-hmm. You don't get to spend a lot of time with any of the characters deep down in their hearts. They're vicious racists, all of them. Right. And they say terrible things. And the white people are of course the worst because they've got power. They don't recognize. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, now we have movies like uh, Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You, which have something to say about race from a platform where it's authentic. And they may be someday seen as over the top and of their moment and absurd. But I guess I guess what I'm saying is like we have a better zeitgeist than we did in 2004. Oh, I agree. I think that we were at a very different place. And by we, I mean white people, mm-hmm. because that that's the people guiding this narrative. Right. Um, like it was Roger Ebert, but it was his top movie that year. Yeah. And I think that usually he has a little bit more critical of an eye mm-hmm. regarding race among his colleagues. His review for Crash, though, was like, well, until the last several hundred years, nobody saw anybody who wasn't their same race. And so now we see people who are different races and we've got to learn to get along. And that is progress. Yeah. I was like, that is progress. That's an unthinkable statement. Right. Two major, at least two major white savior moments in this movie. The famous one, but then also uh, Ryan Philippe advocating for Terrence Howard, which is such a mitigation of his moment of becoming a man that this little scrawny white dude has to step in. Without this person who, in another situation, is just going to go right ahead and shoot a black man in his car and then drag him off to the side of the road and not take responsibility. Yeah. Insane. Now, I did write a little thing in my notes about the slack that I was considering giving this movie. Oh, (laughs) can't wait. Well, this is what I wrote. I don't know if I still feel this way, but this is what woke white allyship, although we weren't using those kind of words in 2004. This is what it looked like. And my privileged position of looking at this movie and being repulsed by it represents, you know, my display of my current version of white wokeness and allyship. So I don't know if that signifies some kind of, of progress or what, or if I'm just saying I happen to be in a position now where I look at this movie and its deep flaws 
are incredibly obvious and easy to see where they weren't 15 years. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I own my own virtue signaling. It's very easy for me to to go crazy on a movie like Crash and talk about how it makes every mistake. And it does make a lot of mistakes. It, it is just as illuminating for me to think of the journey that I've taken on what is acceptable and what is helpful and what is harmful in how we tell cultural stories in uh, in a shared way. And I have I've changed quite a bit in 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, I thought it was just so fair and balanced yeah. that, well, they, it, where, where stereotypes are real, it acknowledges that. And it also turns things about right. sometimes. Right. And, right. Uh, ugh. It's All Lives Matter. Gross. Yeah. It really is an All Lives Matter movie. That's the best way to put it. All right, Dan, have we, uh, this has been, this has been one of our more fascinating conversations. Uh, I, so I don't, I enjoyed it. I don't hold you in contempt for bringing this into our into our arena, but have we said what's to be said? Uh, it doesn't hold up. It's a, it's does a, not hold it's up. A, it's a not holds up for me. Right. It's a uh, falls down, collapses, you know, itself. <laughs> shatters, crashes. It crashes. There you go. Just so it can feel something. Uh, all right, Dan. Thank you for your selection and for a fascinating conversation. You're welcome. I want to do something a little bit. Uh, I want to take a cue from you. You already took us out of our comfort zone chronologically. I want to go okay. a little further Ooh. back into the past. And my pick for next time is The Big Sleep. Okay. I have not seen that one. With uh, Bogart and Bacall. Well, I look forward to it. This one came to mind because it's one of those ones that I hold in my back pocket as, oh, I love that old movie. It's a classic noir. But it's kind of like Brazil in that it's become its reputation of what I've used to think about it is what I've carried with me. And I'm very interested to go and watch it as a movie and then also get your uh, perspective on it. My certified fresh take. Yes. All right. Cool. What are, who are we? I'm Josh. Mm -hmm. You're Dan. Yep. This has been our podcast. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music's by Jonah Rapino. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be uh, with you and at you again soon. Goodbye, Dan. Bye. I'm not looking for us to clash. I just, it just strikes me every time that we agree all the time. And sometimes I do wonder, like, as I tend to be an agreeable yes and person, but I'm not, I haven't misrepresented any of my opinions on the show so far. So. I feel like we've gotten along for the better part of 20 years for a reason. That's true. I guess so, yeah. If, I, if you had a lot of trash takes, I don't think right. we would have put up with each other this long. Yeah.